everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Carolyn Talks. And today I'm joined with writer and filmmaker Marika Bobrick to speak about her new film, The Taste of Fa. So this was a film that screened at the Toronto Real Asian Film Festival and is one of the features selected. And I really enjoy this film. It's about the immigrant experiences, about the relationship between a father and daughter and how they connect through food, but not exactly. And we're going to get into the film. But first, I'd like Marika to introduce herself and just share with us a little bit of how she got into filmmaking. Uh, hi, uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, talk with you. Um, yes, so I got into filmmaking uh, because I always as a kid uh, really liked watching movie and it was sort of a natural choice uh, for me to want to make movies. And for this film, this is it's a Polish German production, but it's about a Vietnamese father and his Vietnamese Polish daughter. So there's a lot of um, cultures that are explored throughout the film. And you yourself are an immigrant. You immigrated from Japan to Poland to pursue filmmaking, as you said. So my first question is, why take it from the Vietnamese perspective and not necessarily from the Japanese one, as that would be your own personal experience? Basically, uh, I came to Poland in 2002, and at that point, the uh, Vietnamese community was the biggest minority in Poland. Um, so therefore, it was sort of uh, natural to me that I had uh, my protagonist be Vietnamese man. I, what I thought was really interesting for the characters is Long has been living in Warsaw for an extremely long time. His daughter is Polish by birth. His wife is Polish. And even the actor who plays him, I read that he was in Poland from since 1989. So you have this immigrant experience, but it's told from the experience of someone who's been living in this country for an extremely long time, which for me has been different because most of the films that I've seen talks more about immigration from someone who has just immigrated to their new, to their new home country. So that was very interesting for me to see, especially as someone who's been living in Toronto for 11 years now in November. And one of the things that I noticed first with um, Long and his daughter Maya is they were speaking Polish at home. They weren't speaking Vietnamese. So like normally when I think of, like for me as a, as a Bajan, when I'm at home, I speak in my Bajan dialect and accent with my, with my twin sister. And when I'm surrounded by other people from the Bacinis, like our natural dialects come out. And for people I know who are, who English is their second language, they tend to speak their first language at home. So it was kind of different for me to see them speaking in their adoptive language at home rather than Vietnamese. So what was the reason for that? Well, it's really, I think that all depends on family and situation. They have uh, individual situation uh, uh, in terms of what language they speak in this sort of uh, multi-cultural uh, family. And here, uh, it was mostly because as I uh, met few Vietnamese people who spoke Polish very well, uh, especially men, Vietnamese men, when they had Polish wives, it happens very often that the kids only speak Polish. Probably it's because uh, it is natural that kid takes um, mother's language first. It is uh, uh, sort of uh, easier for them to have uh, like really primary communication with the language of your mother. At the same time, if they go to school, to kindergartens, um, their Polish sort of uh, becomes first language. And Vietnamese being it's so different from Polish. Uh, and also it happens so that very often Vietnamese men <laughs> here at least uh, extremely hardworking. Um, they are not so often at home from how I observe. 
And I guess that's really why uh, often these families, uh, I mean, kids uh, in this um, Vietnamese Polish family end up speaking only Polish. Uh, of course, uh, they might understand Vietnamese uh, or they might be able to say a few sentences, but it is actually nothing rare that uh, the kids um, don't uh, really actually learn Vietnamese so well, uh, especially when they are born here. And I myself, uh, I have a kid. I'm Japanese, my husband is uh, Slovak, uh, we live in Poland, and me and my husband, we speak Polish to each other, and therefore it's been really tough for my kid to learn Japanese, <laughs> she also goes to Polish school, so uh, yeah, that's, uh, it comes mostly from observation, but then at the same time, I think particularly in this family of Long and Maya, I wanted to also make really, make sure really that they have this mother who well, died a few years ago before the film started. And that language actually gives sort of a presence uh, of the mother, the presence of somebody who, who uh, they uh, long for, they are missing, uh, I thought, because she's Polish. And that's one thing. And the other, I really wanted to make, it sh make sure that uh, long... Uh, as a protagonist is fluent in Polish. So it's not really his, um, uh, let's say, um, problem or his uh, sort of uh, identity uh, is not limited because it's not really because of the limited language. Uh, he's fluent, he, he understands Polish culture, and then yet he has sort of uh, like uh, encounter of... Uh, or to sort of uh, have um, trouble to understand his identity. You know, it was really important for me that he's fluent in Polish, you know, so that the problem of the movie is not really around that he's not, as you said about uh, maybe other movies you watched. I've also seen a few films like that. When the films talk about immigrants, it's quite often about integration, having trouble with integrating uh, to a new country they just came. You know, but the, here in this movie, it's not, uh, that's not really at stake. What's at stake is uh, elsewhere. And I guess we'll talk a bit more about that. But then if Long was not fluent in Polish, if I didn't express that enough, um, then uh, I think uh, people would have immediately thought, oh, this is all because he doesn't speak language, you know, and uh, that's not where I was trying to get at. I understand completely because it does help to show that even when people have been living in a country for 10, 15, 20 years, they can still face challenges as immigrants, but it's, a comp it's something completely different from what they would have been experiencing when they first moved. Absolutely. And, yeah, and I find with Long and Maya, it shows how you can have this misunderstanding of cultures with regards to Maya's. It really struck me with how she sees Vietnam, Vietnam as this backwards country. And she doesn't say that, but from the things she says and the things she does, you get this clear idea that she believes that Vietnam is this backwards country and that Poland is very progressive and is very modern because there's this scene where she tells him, you're not in Vietnam anymore, you're in Europe. And she's stressing Europe, like she's speaking to a child, right? Like she, like, like she thinks he doesn't understand and like for me, that's disrespectful. But then it also shows how she has taken on this very Western or very European and very white European, I would say, idea of superiority. And it's something that they learn. And she does it almost effortlessly. And it really struck me because it's first pointed out with the food. He makes her lunchbox and it's traditional Vietnamese food. And she throws it on. He has no idea that she's throwing out this food. But it's not only that she's throwing it out, but it's like 
and in your film, and like we're gonna we're gonna talk about this, like there's very small moments that say a lot, and they don't include dialogue. It's just usually filming of objects. And one of them is when she when she comes home, she tosses the lunchbox into the sink, and because it's aluminum, it makes a noise and it makes it even more jarring. And to me, that shows such a disregard. <laughs> yeah absolutely and, and i thought i was i'm like this is such a small moment but it says so much about her mentality and the way she sees her father and the way she sees his culture and the food so for those kind of small moments when you have this child and it you're trying not to get angry because she is a child she doesn't understand but for you as the writer and the director how did you convey that to the actress playing maya because those moments were like i'm like little girl you need to tone it down <laughs> watch your mouth yeah, well, uh, it was it was really interesting, you know. When you write a script, uh, it's uh, it's word, and you know, it's uh, really even though you try to really get into character and understand the film as much as you you want, uh, still it's on a piece of paper, you know. And then when the actors actually do it, you understand. I also I was quite sh not shocked, but. <laughs> I felt uh, also struck by the image myself of her throwing actually that uh, food into the garbage. Mm. I was like, oh, this is, this is horrible. <laughs> and the girl, the, the actress, um, Lena, who was playing Maya, she said in the beginning, I'm not gonna do this, you know? Mm. This is too horrible. I'm not gonna do this. It's, uh, it's too much for me. And uh, I couldn't say that, oh, you are right, don't do it. <laughs> I mean, we are making movies. So I had to tell her to do that. But um, yeah, and then and she did it. Of course, she understood uh, that was her her job. I have nothing to say to 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 you know sort of protect her. Right? You are absolutely right. Uh, she's thinking like this white uh, superiority, like a person who thinks that uh, they have things better. They are more developed. Uh, Vietnam is like nothing. Uh, something she's ashamed about and. Uh, that's horrible. But then at the same time, here is this like uh, sort of uh, thin line, this, uh, you know, her thinking that uh, she's better than her father because she's half Polish or, or she was born there and she considers herself Polish. But it's not only that. I think it's so much more about that she's sort of trying to be rebellious against her father. Um, that's like maybe even more of her point in the end. You know, she sort of wants to dress into these uh, trousers with a hole in the knee, you know, this uh, uh, ripped off trousers and uh, not a skirt, long imposes. Um, of course, she names that Vietnamese skirt, but it is actually not Vietnamese skirt. It's a sort of like English girl skirt, which is like sort of maybe uh, the idea of long, uh, that good girl should have this sort of skirt, you know which is a bit ridiculous too, but um, she sort of like uh, decides everything bad is uh, Vietnamese. Um, but it's more, I think, in the end, it's about that she wants to sort of like, um, yeah, uh, go against her father all the way, you know? And um, when she says, oh, I don't want to eat rice every day, in the end, the last food they eat uh, in, at the dinner is rice. <laughs> Uh, when they sort of have this uh, talk on the on the last supper, and in the very last food they eat in the movie, because they eat a lot <laughs> in the movie, yeah. is a very traditional Vietnamese food. It's like sort of rice in the uh, this sort of uh, triangle sticky rice, uh, mm -hmm. which is in the banana leaves, and that's rice too, you know. And she's happy to eat them, I guess. Um, she's helping him to cook it. 
So I believe that um, what you say is right, but then uh, I have to also point out that this is really like uh, sort of she's trying to, by provoking him, she's also trying to understand how much she allows herself to be Vietnamese too, you know, or to understand where she is. She's sort of like, it's for her uh, sort of uh, like, well, not the test or challenge, but she's trying to understand who she is also by doing these things, I think. One of the things that struck me is when, like you mentioned, a part of her rebellion stems from not only as she, not only because she's at that age, because I'm guessing she's around nine, ten. Yeah. So that's where she's forming her personality. She's from her own identity away from her father. But it also stems from, as you said, she thinks her, her father is forgetting her mother. And what struck me with that is there's clear evidence that he's not because he still has the memorial shrine set up to the mother. He still burns incense. He still makes offerings. He still prays for her. So I, it, it really struck me that she thinks he's forgetting the mother. I'm like, but how are you thinking that? Because he's kept her clothes there for you. You play with her jewelry. You do play with her fur. You see him lighting the incense almost every day. And I'm wondering if it, if that was a reflection of her thinking that she's forgetting her mother. And she's kind of projecting that onto the father. Because she sees this lady that lives across from them. And she's blonde like the mother. And she's thinking that this woman is going to be some substitute for the mother. And the father hasn't interacted with this lady, but it's one that she doesn't even see. And it's actually a really bad experience. Yeah. And it shows you how children are so, they're how children's imaginations work and how their emotional states affect their perception of reality. Yes, absolutely. I, I never actually thought about that, you know, to be honest, that it is her who is forgetting about the mother. But I think you're right. I think it's that I imagine that the, the mother died a few years ago and they had to build this routine every day, get up, do this, do that, get dressed, uh, iron, brush your teeth, uh, do your lunch and then go out. And they do this every day. And uh, they need, because I think it's mostly because they need routine to go on, to keep living forward um, when they had such a tough moment in their life. And, uh, but then of course, as time passes, routines becomes just routines and yeah she's sort of also starting to sort of like look elsewhere than her mother's fur her mother's clothes inside the closet she's looking elsewhere to this woman the neighbor woman as you just mentioned uh, well uh, in a way to to gain like sort of feminitive support uh, something that she doesn't have uh, in, in her life anymore because she's mostly with her father who really doesn't understand that part of her. So I think that you're right. She's uh, in a way accusing herself uh, for maybe forgetting about her mother. Her mother is getting less and less in her life. Yeah, I think you're right. Like you mentioned that she doesn't have much maternal figures or much um, women in her life because the one person that would have been there are there's two because there's the, the mother's mother so long mother in law but she's not that present and there's a very interesting scene that, I'm, that we're going to discuss next but there is also cook who is long's best friend's wife and she was there and she gives maya this traditional vietnamese dress to wear but she's she gives it to her at the time that she's leaving they're moving back to vietnam because they miss home and they, they want to just go back to vietnam so you have this maternal figure who is also a connection to not only Maya's mother, because she knew her, but also a feminine representation of the Vietnamese culture. So it's yeah. like she's losing these parts of her, of her not only her past, but also her, her potential future because she has no woman, she has no females to teach her about the Vietnamese culture and that we see. And, and I thought that was very interesting because this is a very formative time for a young girl. And 
this is where she's going to be heading into puberty and there's no woman there to help her be better. But I, you would think that she would maybe see the neighbor as a maternal figure, but she doesn't. She sees her as an antagonist. <laughs> so I thought, yeah. I thought it was kind of interesting to you. You think she'd be like, oh, I can make a friend with Slee. like, nah, you're my enemy. Yeah, because I think she resists uh, the idea, you know, mm-hmm. of uh, of uh, this uh, dif- some sort of uh, unknown woman becoming that, even in her head. She doesn't want to believe that uh, she's uh, longing for uh, some sort of figure. She thinks she's missing her mother. I guess uh, that's sort of uh, natural... Uh, protective thing uh, of kid uh, for the kid uh, mother is the most and only important figure or anyone in a family and then here there comes some sort of stranger and this stranger attracts her very much and she doesn't know why right and I think she's resisting to that idea and the thing with Maya is that we talked about how she kind of sees Poland and almost this white identity as being superior. And children tend to do that. Anything that's different, they tend yeah. to look at and see it yeah. as being better. They always yeah. imagine their own home environment is worse than it actually is. And they're imagining yeah. that everyone else is like the, the grass is always green on the other pastures. Like there's this whole thing with the washing machine. And she makes a comment about why, first of all, she forgot that the reason the washing machine no longer works is because she broke it and the father had to break the window to the to the door but she completely forgets and she's like why do we have to wash our clothes by hand like my friends don't do that I'm like first of all you don't know like she doesn't know what goes on in her friend's home she don't know if they wash their clothes by hand she doesn't know if they also eat rice she only knows what she sees the kids eating at school right children can say things that can make you angry and hurt you and you have to remember their kids but then they also say so much about the society that they live in. Like there are these great flectors of everything that's going on. And because they're so blunt and they don't care if they hurt your feelings. Like she says, I think something that Long himself was thinking, like he's thinking, okay, if things are better on the other side, like maybe I can do better for my daughter. But then he's also has to tell her it's okay to be different. Like we don't have to be like them, but I'm sure in his backup, his mind, he's thinking, am I doing enough to provide for my daughter? But then yeah. he also knows that the grass isn't always green on the other pasture. Yeah. And he himself has had like, negative interactions with white people. The same neighbor, she called him a terrible racist slur. And his daughter doesn't know that he faces racism, mm-hmm. right? She doesn't yeah. know that he faces these kind of negative interactions, not only with white people, but with people that she looks to and sees as being in a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. She doesn't also know that what change he goes through at his work, that he's hired as a sort of sushi maker just because, you know, he's Asian and he should be able to make sushi and Thai food and this and that uh, because they are all the same. And mm. yeah, she doesn't know none, none of that. And um, that's kind of actually when, with you mentioning the, the restaurant, that's kind of the perfect segue to my next question. So the other subplot of the film is the restaurant that Long works at was originally Vietnamese and sold by his friend who sold it to this white Polish man who wants to turn it into this sushi restaurant and assumes that because Long is Asian that he can make this sushi. And it shows you how, particularly for white people, where they assume everything that's Asian is homogenous. They see like the yeah. Asian identity or even ethnic races as monolithic. Like if you're Asian, you if you're whether East Asian, Southeast Asian, South Asian, you should be able to do this because it's Asian. And so he buys a Polish, he buys a Vietnamese restaurant and changes it to a sushi restaurant. And one of the first things he does, they are introducing to him is with the past owner. But, you know, he goes along and he's like, can you tell the Vietnamese boys that are working here that they can't work anymore because I can't communicate with them? 
and because they don't speak Polish. Whereas yeah. and my first thought was, you bought a Vietnamese restaurant, shouldn't you have thought to the fact that you can't communicate with them because you can't speak Vietnamese? How about you try? And it shows this thing with, with whiteness where they assume, they expect everyone else to accommodate them. And they never, yeah. they never think to accommodate others. Yeah, right. Yeah, especially uh, that's also obviously completely what you say is right. But then at the same time, this is also a country where uh, it's not so uh, multicultural. I guess not like Canada. So it's, you know, I speak uh, Polish with lots of mistakes still. It's a difficult language, but then people are like astonished that I speak Polish, you know, that they were, <laughs> it's not like, for example, I experienced, let's say in France, I lived there for just a few months. I never learned French. They would say like, oh, you should learn French. You should speak French, you know? Here, nothing like that would happen if you speak Polish. They're like, oh, wow, you know, that you can, wow, it's amazing. They're like, whoa, that's great. You speak Polish, that's amazing. So <laughs> the thing is that at the same time, what it does is that if somebody's seemingly living here for a long time, then they expect you to rather speak Polish because otherwise, you know, it's hard to survive here because it's, English is not, speaking English is really not common. Between young people, yes, but then still it's like, uh, well, uh, it's, it would be very tough if you don't speak Polish and live here, I think. Mm, of course, it's a, well, let's say that's a stereotype of foreigner. And um, so, yeah, um, you know, they would never think that, okay, I would come into this uh, new restaurant and I'm going to speak to them uh, sort of uh, different language than Polish, you know. So that's uh, also a little bit about uh, here, particularly in this country, that uh, if you work in a restaurant like this, you are expected to speak Polish, yeah. But then in Vietnamese, as I said, Vietnamese uh, uh, community is pretty huge. So they can, in a way, survive uh, within their own community and help each other. And, you know, there are lots of Vietnamese people who don't uh, speak Polish and that they somehow manage and survive. Uh, whereas uh, in the moment when the restaurant changed into something else and then the owner, of course, becomes Polish, uh, for Polish people, it must be so that they think, I mean, if you don't speak Polish, <laughs> you can't work here, you know. Nobody would ever think about that's being unfair, you know. Mm. Yeah, that's, um, that's tough. There's so many moments and so many little things in the film that just really that really struck me because, as I mentioned, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant, but I'm also a Black woman. There's these, we call them microaggressions, but then sometimes they're so commonplace and they happen so often that we kind of just see them and look past them because it's not worth it to get upset because if we were to, we'd always be exhausted. And this, this gentleman, he fired the two Vietnamese workers and he hired um, two white women <laughs> in their place. And they're wearing, I wouldn't even call them traditional Vietnamese or Japanese. <laughs> Um, outfits. They're they're they're, they're the typical <laughs> white. I would say white um, approximation of Asian dress. And yes. they're wearing these in these restaurants. And for and for like as a, as a person of color, my whole thing would be like, first of first, why you got these women wearing these outfits? They're not Asian. They're not Japanese yeah. or Vietnamese. But then I had to think. But then these outfits aren't really. Vietnamese are Japanese, Japanese explicitly because it's just what they think Asian people are Japanese Japanese people wear all the time 
So this is one of those things I'm just gonna I'm just gonna let this go. I'm not even gonna say if it's cultural appropriation, disrespectful or whatever, because not worth yeah. it because they do it so they do it so often. Yeah, it's uh, especially in gastronomy. Uh, uh, you, you know, it's like uh, everything is a symbol, right? It's not uh, if you say sushi, it doesn't have to be like uh, let's say sushi that uh, people because sushi is actually I think so, so solely Japanese food. So it's not I think neither Korean or Chinese food. It's I guess like originally from Japan because like uh, ramen or you know, it's actually, I think from China, um, but uh, sushi is, I think, uh, was uh, Japanese originally. So, you know, when you say sushi, none of sushi look like uh, it is in Japan, you know, it really doesn't mean anything anymore. And uh, um, cloth uh, too, you know, it's like, uh, they just need a sort of symbol. Um, everything just has to be uh, efficient, uh, usable and flashy and, uh, Dedicate, this element must dedicate for money making basically so whether they are going to wear, wear this or that if it's more Chinese or it's just really only about um, yeah being efficient and useful for money yeah and yes but then at the same time they are here that's a really interesting thing because a German producer said oh they should hire Asian people not to uh, blonde uh, Polish girls. But then what happened here in this country is maybe a little bit different than in West. I guess Canada might be similar to what it is in, let's say, Germany. Um, in Germany, they would rather hire a Vietnamese person or Chinese person, whoever, Japanese, Asian looking person who speak German well. Uh, but here, it's not, um, as I said, uh, as uh, multicultural like in West. People would rather probably prefer to go to a restaurant where they have Polish waitresses, you know, mm, who speak perfect Polish. Um, yeah, so that's why it's, uh, it was intentional, of course. Uh, and I'm really surprised that you speak about the costume because for me, actually, that was very important. Um, nobody ever pay attention about that. <laughs> You know, people don't read as 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 much as you you do all these little details. So I'm really like, uh, I appreciate how you watch the movie, but um, um, it's almost the same with this uh, Long's new costume. Long has also a new costume in this uh, sushi restaurant, like a, like a chef. You know, like <laughs> he was uh, dressed in his like this uh, summer cloth when he was cooking for. It was really hot in the kitchen, so and uh, humid. So he was in this his. Uh, sort of like uh, his um, everyday cloth, but then now he suddenly has to wear this <laughs> really uptight uh, <laughs> chef cloth. And, um, you know, is this necessary? I guess maybe not, but then the look is so important <laughs> to he, the owner wants to sell this place, uh, present this place as a sort of like a hype, uh, more expensive, better, uh, richer, flashy place so clothing is um yeah outfit is important i guess yeah yeah um i saw for long for him changing from the typical button down shirt and slacks or corduroy pants that he was wearing to the more sophisticated professional looking chef's uniform for me that was very interesting because it also kind of reflected in his actions as a chef itself because it's interesting where you you see one iteration of him as a cook and then the other one as a chef, because we've got, we've been, I think we've all been so conditioned to seeing certain things in a specific light where 
if they look more casual and look more comfortable, they're if they look more sophisticated and they're wearing the the suit and he's wearing like the latex gloves and the more expensive cutlery. He's a chef, but he's still the same cook. Yeah. And yeah. one of the things that really struck me, and this is again, I keep mentioning this, but it's also this like the way we did film certain little moments where, for instance, when he's tasting the the water for the to cook the sushi rice, he uses the ladle and then he puts the water into this little dish to taste it. But when he's tasting the pho, the broth of the pho, he he tastes directly from the ladle. And I saw that to me as not only as a as the the dichotomy of the two experiences that he's having as a Vietnamese person now working in this Polish run restaurant, but also his um how he's feeling in this space that was once comfortable to him is now uncomfortable. He's doing things in a completely different manner. And yeah. and like for me, if I'm at home, I'm, I cook the taste from the spoon and he's no longer at home in the kitchen, right? And right. I just saw that as one of those really small moments where it shows how he's unconsciously yeah. telling you how he feels. Yes, absolutely. Um, um, even that, you know, even as a food, pho is something that produces lots of uh, steam. Um, it's the kitchen is misty and it must be warm and lots of cooking. And so, whereas sushi is something, it should be cold. You know, the fish is cold. It's probably frozen. It's completely not his world. And he's sort of uh, pushes himself into this to just do it, get himself and do it. And uh, yeah, he, he must be extremely uncomfortable, you know. And also what's interesting to me was that, as you uh, mentioned, that he's like this looking like a sophisticated chef, <laughs> um, seemingly, but he just learned to make sushi in a sushi class. So the actual sushi that people probably eat is really not, you know, like something, um, it's not, um, his skill is completely elsewhere, although he's maybe is a good cook, I believe he's a good cook, but then still, um, it's a completely different food. So he is an amateur in making sushi, and it's really all about uh, what's exterior looks good and in, what is actually given, what, you, what people taken and putting their mouth and into their body is actually like a, well, uh, you know, something so um, thin, like uh, plastic, like uh, authentic, you know, and uh, that is uh, just a kind of time we live in. And I think that Long knows that, as you said, he feels uncomfortable. I think he does feel uncomfortable. Also, of course, with the environment, but he also knows what he's making is not, you know, uh, what he knows how to cook. I don't even know if he thinks sushi is tasty. <laughs> Maybe I should have <laughs> thought about that. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, because like you, like you mentioned um, the classes. So that was actually one of the questions I want to ask you because as a, as a Japanese person, I wanted to ask you about the commercialization of Japanese culture, in particular how it's like using sushi as a metaphor, because there's this scene with him at in the where he attended the class and he comes outside to smoke and he's under this little shelter with these other men. And they're talking about how sushi, learning sushi is more profitable because working in a sushi restaurant pays more. And they make the comparison to, to kebab, uh, which is a, excuse me, a South, East, a, South Asian, uh, a South Asian dish. And they're like, oh, it's all the same because it's Asian, but it's also there, like, it's rule. And I'm like, yeah. no, it's not. It's like two completely <laughs> different dishes from two completely different cultures. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but again, it's, it speaks to how, like, ethnic cultures, especially from people of color, are commercialized and they're only seen as profit-making ventures for, for people. Like, the restaurant, 
the owner, he changes it to a sushi restaurant because um, he's, I'm sure he's thinking, he's looking at the market, he's like, oh, sushi, Japanese food is be more profitable because it's, again, this exotic dish, but it's one that has been commercialized to suit a specific palate. It's not the exact same because I've never had sushi that really from Japan, but the sushi that I have had from restaurants run by Japanese people does taste different to sushi you would get in a supermarket. The quality is different, of course, because of freshness or whatever, but the taste itself is different and you can yeah. tell. So when I saw that scene, I was thinking, oh, again, we were talking about the commercialization of ethnic cultures yeah. and it's not because they have a genuine interest in learning Japanese culture, Japanese food. It's because they're thinking, this is how I can make the most money. Yeah, obviously. But then again, at the same time, uh, I from how I felt about that scene, these guys who are learning sushi, they are also, you know, really uh, in a way a victim of all that because, uh, you know, okay, once you learn how to make kebab, you make living, you have family, you have to pay your, your bills, you know, uh, but the next day suddenly kebab is not popular anymore. So you have to change uh, what you do and they have to sort of keep uh, going on, like stick to the, the what's new and, uh, even Polish people who are um, involved in this. Uh, I mean, everyone, even us, uh, even me, you know, making movies, uh, we just sort of need to stick to not to be late with the, what <laughs> our society is like telling us to do, you know, it's not really like you don't have any more feeling that, uh, yeah, absolutely for a long time already anyway, <laughs> the feeling that you are, in charge of uh, what you do. It's like everything is told, you know, what to buy, your washing machine, it's broken, don't fix it, buy new. Um, okay, and now sushi is in, okay, tomorrow, I don't know, Mexican food is in, so it's gonna change, all change, everybody must, must make Mexican food. You know, it's like, um, it's like that. And so I wasn't specifically, actually rather thinking in this scene, particular scene that these guys who are in gastronomy, uh, uh, Polish young men, uh, like, oh, they don't care about Japanese culture. In my point of view, of course, they don't care about Japanese culture because what they are interested in is to, to pay bills and uh, it's the price we pay for, in a way, to live in this sort of type of society, like capitalism, everything is extremely materialistic and uh, we may make ourselves like a material, you know, like we change clothes, uh, one day you liked red and then tomorrow you have to like blue uh, and you don't know anymore what you really like. And that's, uh, of course, uh, what Long is going through, I think. And yeah, everyone else, I guess. That's why Maya is lucky because kids at least think that they know what they like. <laughs> it's true. And, and that's the thing, like when you, you mentioned capitalism and commercialism, it all goes the same because then I was thinking, like they, they mentioned pierogies, but even like living in Canada, because especially Toronto is such a multicultural um, society, yes, we can have authentic, quote unquote, authentic restaurants run by people of the same identities and ethnicities. But then when you go to the supermarket, you, you're getting prepackaged goods. You can get prepackaged kebabs, you can get prepackaged pierogies. You know what I mean? And prepackaged, yeah. I buy ramen, I buy the packaged ramen, I buy the packaged pho, and all of these things. And even for my own, for my own West Indian culture, when we, we can get like one of the Mo I think it is the most popular snack here, like on, on the go snack here, you can get at Subway's or whatever, is beef patties. And so beef patties originated in the, the version that we have are originated in the Caribbean, particularly yeah. Jamaica and Trinidad. So 
all we have people of all ethnicities and all cultures partaking of this traditional West Indian snack, but it's still kind of not the exact same because it has been formatted to fit uh, multiple palettes. So like the ingredients might not be as spicy. So that's kind of how you, you you look at it. Like like even Long mentions it where you have to you you have you're making your traditional dish, but you can't make it exactly traditional because right. you have to make it for the palate to suit the people of where you're living. And that's one of the things mm-hmm. of being an immigrant. Being an immigrant is all about adapting. We we talk about assimilation versus immigration, uh, integration. Sorry, but it's so much of it is about adapting, about being able to survive in a new environment, being able to survive in a place where people not necessarily don't look like you, but they don't think like you, and they don't have the same experiences. And uh, for me, one of the biggest things for me of adapting is my language, is how I speak. I don't speak in my dialect when I'm speaking to other people, whether they're, um, like even with you, I have to, I toned down my dialect, my accent, so that you can understand. Because if I spoke in my actual accent dialect, you would not, you wouldn't necessarily be able to understand <laughs> me, but I speak so fast, okay. it would be like, it would be completely different. But that's, that's something that Long and his friends are experiencing, where they have to learn to adapt to society. And sometimes it gets to the point where you're tired of adapting, you're tired of changing who you are. And you go back home. So, and like, yeah. now he comes to that conclusion at the end. He's like, how about we go home? We, they, they have to visit Vietnam. And that's kind of the progression they make in the film where for him is he comes to the point where he's, okay, I can adapt here. I am going to keep adapting because he calls her at the, dinner, at the dining table. I can make sushi. I can make kebabs. I can make anything. And for me, I saw that as him saying, he's do whatever. He's going to do whatever he needs to do. Not for himself, but for his daughter, because this is yep. home. South African owner came to open the restaurant. He learned how to cook South African dishes because this is not only is he at home in the kitchen, but he's going to do what he needs to do to survive for his daughter. Absolutely. Because all these things are, give me a lot of question also living here. You know, we live in so much contradictions and also submissiveness. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, what is it in this situation that he is in that he would be a survivor, but then at the same time, he sort of uh, can maintain his uh, dignity. And yeah, it's, uh, it's still for me, it's, uh, as the question isn't really solved even after making this film. Because uh, if you, as you just described about the reason why he, he submits himself to continue making these dishes and even to say that he will make anything, even kebab. You know, it's actually painful for me at the same time because, okay, so long as somebody who doesn't like uh, buying new things, he prefers to fix washing machine. Of course, it's a money thing too, obviously, but then he is this type of person. He sort of prefers to use old things uh, as much as he can and, you know, keep his place look really old. And, you know, he doesn't seem to be interested in like uh, having new things and make his home look beautiful. (laughs) But then he has to change. And I mean, in a sense that he has to get this himself a new washing machine. And I believe that this working in this sushi place maybe allows him to buy a new washing machine. And uh, yeah, it's, um, it's really, the, the film doesn't really answer that. But uh, at least in terms of long, and the, the film is about father and daughter, how he relates to his daughter and how you survive in a country which is not on your own to have a kid who actually grows up in this falling culture. This is the, to me, on, his only answer uh, to say that, okay, I'm gonna be here and keep cooking what they tell me to do, you know? But then I still make the food I make and feed my daughter in the food that I make. 
at home that nobody can interfere. It's a happiness that nobody can interfere, even capitalism. <laughs> so yeah, but then I also still have this feeling that it's uh, in a way a little bit painful ending, although the music is pretty bright and <laughs> seems like it's a happy ending. There's still unsolved uh, thing for me. Like you, you said something and it kind of struck me where is you, you do what you have to do and then it's, but you're trying to hold on to who you are because it kind of reminds me of like, one of the things as immigrants we try to do is we try to keep our own personal connections to who we are at home. And where we are at home is our, is who we are most, is where we're most comfortable. But then it struck me and I, I just started thinking about it. I haven't been home in probably four years, but the two times that I've been home previously since I moved, people always expect me to be different. They know that as an immigrant, you have to adapt and you have to integrate and, and do what you have to do. So they kind of think that you're going to take on this completely new identity. And when I go home, people will be like, oh, I thought you'd have a Canadian accent or whatever. And I'm like, ah, no, <laughs> why would I have this Canadian accent? And even at home, my mom would tell me, oh, you you have to do these kind of things. I'm like, I do these things at home too. You know, I, I still wash, I still cook and clean the same exact way that I grew up, that you taught me to when I grew up. And from Maya, and for long, it's the same way. Like when he does finally visit home with Maya, she's going to get to see this side of him that she's not, not going to, that she's never been able to see. Because even though they're home, as you mentioned, is he keeps things old. And I think that's because he's trying to hold on to who he was as a, as a person. And like the changes he makes is because of Maya. He's forced yeah. to make changes because of her. Uh, they're not yeah. bad changes, but for her, she doesn't see how these changes could affect her father personally. She's just seeing these things that she thinks are positive changes, not because she's like, oh, I never knew you were to be a good cook. I'm like, he was cooking rice for you all along. And, but it's not because she's accepted this version of her father where he's kind of like capitulated and given in. She's thinking, ah, it all tastes so much better now. And it's the same exact dishes he was making before. So hmm. it just, and it just kind of struck me if he were to take her home, she'd see him in a different light because she'd see maybe, oh, this is my, this side of my father is who I wish he could be because he's more relaxed. He's more himself. As you said, like the ending of the film, it's inferred that it's a happy ending, but it's still kind of sad where because as immigrants, we have, we do have to kind of push down ourselves a little bit. We kind of do have to change ourselves. And it kind of shows you that society still take so much from us and sometimes we, we, we can't protest the changes because the, yeah. again it's not the energy isn't worth it but it's also kind of just reminding me how resilient we are as people yeah exactly yeah when i ask myself still i till to this day i could ask this question is this ending really was good ending for for him that didn't i force him to you know be nice to neighbors and kind of be happy with a new washing machine. I mean, we never see him happy with a washing machine, but we see him sort of happy cooking last dinner uh, with Maya. And uh, was this ending that I should have given him? Wasn't I, if I was not unfair to him? But then again, he is a cook. He is somebody who has a profession like really in the center of this society. <laughs> He's not a philosopher. He's not intellectual. He is... Uh, somebody who really work a lot well mm. he also raises his daughter on his own I mean it's like so much work and it is fair that I, I, I tell myself that later when I have these questions like it, it is actually fair that uh, he has this tiny moment of sort of happiness in the in the end of the film 
really, I, I, I don't know. It's a question that goes on and on. And I hope, I think we should be keep asking this question. If we don't ask this sort of question, then, then pff, it's like, it's over. <laughs> Human being make no sense. Life don't make no sense. It, you know, it may seem unfair and it kind of is, but that's a part of reality, especially for people of color, because that you mentioned, and this it was literally on my list, I was going to ask you about it, is he does eventually kind of making friends with his neighbor, who is the woman who called him a racist slur. Yeah. And I remember seeing that scene and I was thinking, oh, okay, as a woman walking alone at night, she has a reason to be afraid. She doesn't know this man. I, as a woman, I would feel the same way. But then it's her fear changes and she just blurs out this slur. And I immediately change from being sympathetic from her circumstances to be like, oh, you're racist too. And it just kind of dropped me into the moment where it's for, for some people, it's just so easy to slip into the racism. And yeah. she could have said anything, but she chose a racist slur. And then, as you said, like, you were wondering if it was fair to him, where he kind of becomes friends with her. Well, not friends, but we see him offering to help her and her and her spouse move in, move baby furniture in. And I was just thinking, if that were me, I would be no struggle <laughs> and move it in yourself. Because I remember what you called me, but then it just also reminded me that as a person of color, like we as a black woman, I've had experiences with people, whether it's at work or just in just out in society, where I've had racist encounters with people, or whether they're overt like that, or that you know like subtle migrant uh, microaggressions and subtle anti-blackness, and you still have to be around these people so you accept it and you move on like my sister my sister we talk about these things all the time with her at work where right. she, she talks about these people but then she has to go wake up the next day and go back to work with these same people who she knows have aggressive um tendencies and have racist ideas and ideologies and so as you say it may it's not fair because it isn't but it's reality right it's something that we all have yeah to- yeah and also that uh, i have to mention that this girl uh the neighbor actually came up and then said sorry and uh that's like something that also don't happen and she said she was afraid uh in the night but then i also thought that uh, she's pregnant and she's seemingly not like happy about it or so as she smokes cigarette by the window and you know like I told myself that this is a woman who is like really really like irritated about everything because she's probably pregnant without wanting to be something we don't know but that I was thinking um, about this character that way yeah the fact that she came up and said sorry and also had uh, him come into her apartment and she had to tell him that uh, her his kid is looking at her uh, watching her with the binoculars, I kind of expected that they must have had some sort of conversation afterwards, you know, and cleared something, something that we didn't see. Um, uh, but uh, was okay for him to sort of um, um, accept her apology, you know. Because when she comes in and says, I'm sorry, he doesn't accept that anyway. You know, she's like, oh, okay, just don't talk to me, right? But then in the end of the film, it's different. So maybe it's also to do with the fact that I also had a many, many, many sort of accidents and uh, encounter like that. Not only something so direct, even like somebody who, uh, you know, I study with uh, or somebody who I saw this like friend of friend, let's say. <laughs> can say something horrible to you and then you think like oh my god like is he or she really saying this to me like 
And very, very often, at least here, um, I mean, nowadays, of course, things change a lot, but, um, and dynamically, but a lot of people here also are not so aware about certain words or certain way of expressing themselves or certain idea they think about other countries are racist, you know? People in many ways are not uh, well educated, might be wrong word, but aware really of that. Yeah, that will eventually change and it's keep changing. And, uh, but politically correctness is not, let's say very, uh, something strong. I mean, nowadays it is, but it's never been something so strong here, I think. This is a country that was uh, in communism for like, uh, for, well, 60 years. And uh, it's only ended about 30 years ago. And the uh, European Union, they are here only 15 years. And uh, before that was basically like continuity of communism. So yeah, I mean, I don't mean to defend that. Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. Yeah. But then still, I think long, he had to go through all that as well, you know. <laughs> so yeah, he actually must have sort of have sort of capacity to, well, live with it. Yeah. And I think that's just his way of adapting and moving forward. He's like, you know what? <laughs> This lady is my neighbor, so I probably just got to make the best of the situation and move on. But before we wrap up, there's two other things I want to touch on. One is the casting. Yeah. So for the casting, like I thought the two main actors are amazing. I think they did a really, really good job. But there's this one person that I want to talk to. And this is this little boy plays Bar. Is it Bartel? Yes, Bartek. Yeah. Bar Bartek. And he plays Maya's best friend. So he doesn't <laughs> have a lot of scenes. He has like two or three scenes. But he yeah. struck me as a very good actor because there's this one scene, and you mentioned it's the one where Maya is caught spying on the neighbor with the binoculars. And there's this moment where they realize, oh, we've been caught, and the other kids leave. But he sits down, and he's looking at her from the corner. And this look on his face, I, that was a very mature expression. And it's this expression of, you're in deep trouble, but I'm going to be here for you. And I just thought, and I just wanted to mention that too, because I think he was so good in that one scene. And I'm like, that's something that even most, I think, adult actors may struggle with, where you just tell so much with your facial expression, and you just get the whole, ah, she's in trouble, but she's my buddy, so I'm going to stick here with her. So I just thought <laughs> I would mention that to you, because he was really, <laughs> that scene really struck me. I was like, you know, you have a future there, kid. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, so um, so for the cast, could you tell me how you cast um, Long and Lena? Um, and um, Lena, her name, last name is Nguyen, and I'm like, isn't that yeah. a... That's that's a Nguyen is I'm trying to remember is that Vietnamese or Thai? Nguyen is is a Vietnamese. Yeah, it's name, a Vietnamese. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. So she is Polish um, Vietnamese. Yes, she is. Yeah. Yeah. So um, could you tell me about casting her and also play uh, casting the actor who played um, Long? Yes. Uh, so actually, I have to start with Long because he was casted uh, much earlier. <laughs> we did casting for like two years, maybe like not every day, uh, but uh, we had three different casting directors. It's been very, very long process because, uh, as I said, Vietnamese uh, community is the biggest minority, but then still there is no Vietnamese actor who is professionally working here. So we had to obviously cast somebody who is uh, amateur and had to be in, in this certain age between like 35 to four, 45. And so it's like a man who we really are working, <laughs> you know, not like student. So who has time to like uh, suddenly break off from his work and then work for like uh, one month uh, 
and half for movie, you know, that sounded ridiculous for many Vietnamese men. And so um, it's been very, very tough actually to, to find him. But then what's really funny is that he came actually to the very fast casting that lasted two years, but then he came to the very, very fast casting where there were about 20 men. And I saw him and I said, uh, he's great. He's the best, uh, I think he can do it. But then because this was a very fast casting, we are like, there must be more, you know, <laughs> if in a fast <laughs> casting someone like this come, then there must be like really more amazing, amazing people. <laughs> so, and I also have to admit that I was expecting Long to be a little bit something like uh, somebody who has a little bit different quality, somebody who is maybe a little bit more uh, troubled with himself, somebody who is maybe not so comfortable with himself, you know, like Long himself, uh, because actor's name is also Long, character's name too. Um, so we kept uh, looking for this uh, Long, uh, I don't know anymore what I was thinking, but I was thinking about someone. <laughs> and we went on and on and on, and then a film got financed, and we had to finally decide. And I realized, I always remember that man, and like, ah, it's him. So I went back to the casting tape and I look at him and, and I thought, okay, this is the man. And by that time I had another girl, different girl, who was very, very pretty, really talented uh, actress and so, but she and Long didn't fit. She was this more like a sharp, uh, smart, really sophisticated, beautiful model girl, you know? Mm. Uh, good student, uh, really straight posture and, and I was like, oh, shit, they don't fit. This just won't work. The film won't work if, if they don't have no chemistry. And then actually they did not have chemistry uh, as a as person in everyday life. They had no chemistry. So I had to go and look for uh, the girl, which was like one month prior to shooting. <laughs> and we are like, OK, we have to postpone the shooting or what do we do? And then this, uh, uh, one of the casting director called me and then say that, uh, oh, she just got this email from uh, one of the mother of the kid who we asked to come to the casting because I visited uh, all the primary school here to see all the girls uh, who are half Vietnamese, half Polish. And I uh, noticed Lena. So we sent uh, her mother email to invite her to, to the casting to come and see us. Um, but then this mother never got our email. She found this mail from us in her spam mailbox when she was cleaning her yeah mails and then she just wrote us that uh, oh uh you wrote us uh, you wrote me four months ago can she still come to the casting <laughs> and i'm like oh yes this is the girl and i met her i have her meet with long and then i knew that this is the girl so uh both of the kids was pretty extreme that i had to realize long was the man after two years of trying to cast him it's really, really difficult to find an actor here uh, if you want to find someone who speak Polish also and be Vietnamese and in this Asian. So who is willing to act, you know, even very little people wanted to even act in a movie. Uh, so, and also this girl, <laughs> one month before shooting, we changed the girl and finally found this perfect Lena. And uh, so, yeah, casting was really big deal. And I can also tell you another story about Long, um, why he came to casting. He's a person who is in marketing has three kids and has stable family and he really doesn't need to find uh, another job you know acting in a movie is like really not his thing but his second son who was back then 17 years old came up to long and said uh, 
he wanted to be an actor and he wanted to study acting. And Long was shocked, you know, like, oh, uh, I think it's a bad idea, right? <laughs> and how to tell my son that be, like, uh, being an actor is such a hard job and it's a really bad idea to want him to be an actor. I mean, you have to go to casting, you have to get rejected many times, you have to like keep trying and you have lots of competition and you never maybe even get a one role in your life, you know? I mean, it's a hard world. So, so he uh, saw our uh, casting call and uh, took his son and then came to, to see us to show him how the casting work and then to show him the example of not getting, the, <laughs> getting any role. <laughs> and he and got it. Two years later. <laughs> yes. But then two years later, so when we started shooting, this son, actually, I don't know how that happened, but he, he got enrolled in NYU. Um, in acting department and he's now about to finish uh, his study and he's going to be a professional actor so life is is extremely funny yeah they did really well and I can see what you mean about the chemistry because just from describing the other actress that didn't make it I can't envision her in the space that Long and Maya inhibit inhabit sorry and that's like you talked about their home he doesn't want to change things so things look dated and old and I can't imagine someone that fits the whole as you said she's very straight and she speaks a certain way existing in that space like Lena has a very comfortable, um, I guess you could say, air about her. Like you, yeah. I can, she looks at home in that space. So, like, no, you you were spot on. You mentioned that I'm um, like San Long, who plays um, who plays Long. He's marketing, but he's effortless in that role. Like he looks at home in the space. He looks at home in the kitchen, and I think they they both did a really really good job. So, from my last question, we talked about the setting, and there's this one scene which I thought was completely different to everything else in the film, and you know, it's this memory of the mother, and we only see her feet moving across um, the carpet. But what was striking with this scene is it's like an auditory memory because Long is reading this book. I'm, I'm not sure what kind of book it was. I was wondering if it was an instruction book for for making sushi. But the wall behind him, you see palm leaves start to appear, and you hear this music, and it's he's listening to, to traditional Vietnamese music, but you're hearing like the beach and the waves. So that kind of took me back to from back home in Barbados. Like I was like, ah, I miss the beach. But then you're you're having the visual of her walking across the carpet, and she's wearing this silk robe, and you're seeing a carpet, but you're imagining that she's walking on the beach, that she's walking through sand. And I didn't thought that was just so well done, where it can show you how the brain, <laughs> how the brain is so fascinating, where you're seeing one thing, but you're able to imagine something else. And it's so convincing that you're, you're imagining that maybe they had their honeymoon in Vietnam. I just wanted to tell you about that scene. Cause... Oh, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's a scene that uh, also really, um, you know, I wish all the films that could be made that way. <laughs> Without dialogues, without all this uh, plot making, but then also like this purely be visual and uh, sound uh, work. That's actually my dream to make a film like that. Have you ever seen Sound of Metal? It came out last year. Uh, no, no. Sound of Metal? Yeah, you should. I think you mentioned wanting to make a film like that. That film, it stars Risa Men and it's directed by Darius Mauber. To me, it's one of the most unique film experiences I've ever had because it says a lot of it has to do with auditory interpretation of sounds. So it's about this character played by Risa Men. He's a, dr- a heavy metal drummer and he loses his hearing suddenly. But it's like it comes and goes. So the, the way you hear sound is there then it just vanishes. And then you hear like muffled speech and all of that, and like tinnitus and okay. stuff. And I think based on just that scene, I think you would really enjoy this film. I wish you could get to see it in a cinema because those sound design, I think is- Right. Different. 
Of course, um, yeah. But but I think you like you. I think you really enjoy it. Okay, thanks a lot. I I'll definitely look up for that. Cool. Yeah, that scene kind of reminded me of that. Where if you can hear something and you're visualizing what you're not seeing. So, yeah. And just the sound design of like the beach and and everything. Thanks. So before we wrap, as we're gonna wrap up, is there anything that you like to tell us? Do you have any films currently in production, or are you working on any scripts or anything you'd like to pitch? Uh, yeah, I'm just. Uh, I hope it's true because every time I write a draft, I think it's finished. <laughs> <laughs> But then, like uh, two weeks later, I'm like, oh no, it's not, it's not. I have to do it all over again. Um, so I'm, I, I'm just thinking actually that I, I'm done with a script, but uh, this time completely something else about uh, brother and sister, so family in a full uh, acrobats uh, in a circus uh, that uh, was in a communist time in eighties uh, during martial law. This was a time when. Uh, uh, people couldn't go out to the street. I uh, had lots of uh, trouble, uh, economic trouble and moral trouble. So like specifically about this uh, Polish uh, brother and sister who lived at that time as an acrobat. And yeah, as I said, I thought I finished uh, a few days ago. <laughs> I hope I will think the same in a, in a week when I reread it. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you'll get it done again. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Mariko. I really no. Th thank you so much also for speaking to me, and thank you so much for watching the film so carefully. I've never really had such a great uh, feedbacks and such a careful watching, and I really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's like really worth making film to have a viewer like you. I'm also afraid to have a viewer like you, but uh, <laughs> really, thank you. <laughs> you have no need to be afraid of me. <laughs> but no, thank you so much for speaking with me. And everyone, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Carolyn Talks. But you can check the realasian.com site to see your announcements for the film. And for me, as usual, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at CarrieCNH12. As I've been mentioning for this summer going into fall, I've been taking for the active film critics Bridger Round Tables and we've been having a lot of great discussions with black creatives in the film and television industry and one of our new episodes is a, about the film Farewell Amor by the director Akwa Misangi and we spoke to Akwa and to her head cast about the film and you can also look up our interviews with Sonico Martin Green from Star Trek Discovery and also many other actors in films that have been released this year including Rada Blank for her film The 40 Year Old Version which is showing on Netflix and when we for uh, his film His House which is also on Netflix and also the director of Jingle Jangles which is also <laughs> on Netflix uh, so you can look at those interviews on the Afco YouTube channel and the Afco website so again thank you so much for speaking to me and everyone wear a mask mm -hmm.